This is Strange Assembly episode 138. Remember me. I'm Chris Stevenson, and here with me today is Jay Earl. Who are you? Uh, I don't know, Pharaoh Bender. I was making a joke on the the episode name. Yes. Yes, I know. That's which is that's a that's Bender. Uh, right. No. No. I got you. You were yeah. just taking a minute there, so I, yeah, I was well, worried I had once again confused you. My bad jokes. I am dazed and confused, but in a perfectly legal way. Uh huh. We'll believe you too. For obvious reasons, we call this podcast Strange Assembly. Your tabletop gaming podcast. Jay and I today are just going to talk about some board games that we've played recently. So let's just kick it off with Zulkin. Now, we've talked about Zulkin before on episode 89. So you can go back and listen to episode 89 if you want to hear any sort of detail. But I am bringing it up. I, I guess because I'm you want bringing it up to brag. To brag. Yes. It's a really weak thing to brag about, but I think it's more that I'm excited, and especially since the end of the story is going to be you humiliating me with my on my fancy new copy of Zulkin. That's why I'm allowing the story to continue. Yes. So, at Gamerama in Atlanta over Memorial Day weekend, I played in a Zulkin tournament, and because this is not Ticket to Ride or Settlers of Catan, the, the tournaments are largely everybody sits down and plays a game and then you take the winner of each of those games and then they those people play a second game and whoever wins that gets a prize well in this case the prize was a hand painted copy of zulkin which is doubly nice for me because although i really like zulkin i don't own it there's just other people in various groups have had it around and right you have to make budgetary decisions about what you buy and what you don't. So even though I've liked Zulkin, I hadn't gone out and, and bought it before. And if you, you go on BGG or other sites, you can see all sorts of copies of people who have, have pimped out their copies of Zulkin by painting the wheels. And so I won a copy of this. I actually got to play against the woman who had done the painting in the first round of the tournament. So I was all excited about that. I I think I tweeted out a picture of the board. So, of course, over this weekend with my shiny new toy, I sat down and, I, if I'm not mistaken, let's see, I, I, well, I'm not, I'm not, I know I'm not mistaken about who I played with, but I played against with my wife, Katie, who had played it once before because I made her play it during the week because I wanted to play with my fancy new board. And I played with Jay, who, according to him, had never played before. I have not, no. And I proceeded to finish in last place, and Jay won, despite the fact that I... You hate-drafted me at least twice that game. It was hilarious. Yeah, well, I hate-drafted once and a half, give or take, on the the monuments, and still still I lost. So, clearly not not firing on all cylinders for me that game. Not Not good. Would you like to, to brag on your, your crushing defeat? No, 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 you're doing a good enough job for me. Okay, well, so I still, like I said, I mean, you can go back and listen to 89 for the a fuller discussion of Zulka, but I still really like it, and because, of course, having having refrained for so long from buying Zulkin itself, now that I had the copy, I had to go out and buy the expansion, Tribes and Prophecies, which I've I played once before, so I ordered that today from Cool Stuff, along with some Star Wars LCG and Splendor, so and some other things. Because, right, of course, you have to spend at least $100. I mean, well, I mean, yeah, that's why they give you free shipping, is so that you will do that. That's why Amazon used, used to always be $25 for free shipping, because you'd be like, well, I'm spending twenty bucks. Let's go and make that twenty-five. Yes, except really the twenty-five would be thirty-two. Where oh, yes, that's exactly why you have the threshold for free shipping. Amazon still does that. I think it's thirty-five now, but just you know, right? Everybody has Prime or something, right? So you just instead pay them a hundred dollars a year in advance <laughs> for the privilege of not having the twenty-five dollar limit. 
But Jay and I have played some other games recently, and so I wanted to start with one of the ones that I really liked, Valley of the Kings, but I am going to make Jay be the one who gives the general overview of it. Okay. So I quite enjoyed Valley of the Kings. It's it's an interesting take on the deck builder. So it's a deck building game. It's Egyptian-themed. I believe the way you first described it to me is we're competing pharaohs, and because we're pharaohs, you can take it with you. So the important key of the game is to get as many treasures into your burial crypt as possible. But you only get what you, you know, take with you. What's left in your deck doesn't count. So it's it's really interesting. One of the big keys with most deck-building games is stripping out junk cards. This is the first one I've seen that's about stripping out the good cards and doing it well. Again, because the way you you get points at the end of the game is based on the cards you have in your or strip out deck in your tomb. Once you get past that, it's a relatively straightforward deck building game. You spend your turn, you play all the cards in your in your hand. You can either use them for abilities or use them for money. You can then buy cards out of the middle, although instead of a row like Ascension, they have you build a little pyramid because, again, it's Egyptian, ancient Egyptian-themed. But yeah, you, you just add cards, buy cards to put in your deck, and then remove them to get points later. Yes, I, I, I think you can fairly describe the victory condition as he who dies with the most toys wins. Yeah. I like it. It's one of these micro games that AEG has been doing. It's from Alderac. It's designed by Tom Cleaver. So it comes in the, the same sort of little bitty box that Love Letter comes in now, or that Maximum Throwdown came in, uh, and that Sale to India comes in, which we'll talk about in a, in a little bit, or I'll talk about in a little bit at least. And there's a, a reasonable amount of depth in there in addition to the decision making that you have with entombing cards, because you're usually entombing cards out of your hand, so you have to decide whether or not you're going to entomb it now or you want to use it to try to improve things. I think it's also pretty distinctive within the deck-building genre that you have to decide for each card to use it for its action or to use it for its money value. I think a lot of the time in in deck-builders, either the card is just a money card or the card's action is give you money in some way. I, I don't know how often it's really been that you have to make that decision. So every turn you have to decide, you know, do you do you just pool all your money together to buy a nifty card for next time, or do you do you play some actions and then get a, a smaller card? Especially if you play it two player, you can there's definitely some hate buying that you can do because there's a set collection aspect to the point scoring. The box says 45 minutes. I think it very easily plays in that or or less once you know how to play, and it easily supports the, the full two- to four-player range. It doesn't get any longer when you have more players in because the end of the game is clocked on the deck or the, the deck running out. The deck has, I think, 54 cards in it, the communal deck that you're buying out of, and Almost every turn, someone will buy something out of the deck, and if someone doesn't interfere with the pyramid at all during their turn, then they, then one of the cards in the pyramid goes to the boneyard, the communal discard pile, to keep the game moving along. I, I like that. I, I thought it was quite good. That's Valley of the Kings, a game uh, from last year that I got to play at Gamerama was Quantum, that's from FunForge Games and designed by Eric Zimmerman. In this game, and I think there may have been a couple games that have a concept like this, it's a space game where your ships are dice. Yeah. There are these squares, and each square is a planet, and you can build a variety of different maps. The basic setup is just, well, here, I think here's a square. Everybody starts in a corner. And the way that you're ultimately winning is you have some little bitty cubes that are called quantum cubes and you are able to place one if your ships your dice which are six-sided dice are surrounding the planet and 
those ships add up to exactly the number printed on the planet, then you can take a couple of your actions to put your cube down. But, of course, everybody's trying to interfere with everybody in this. There's a lot of combat running around. The six different sides of the dice each represent a different kind of ship. So I think a one, a one is a battle station and a two is a flagship of some sort of the equivalent of an aircraft carrier or something. And then you have scout ships and, and frigates. And for each die, the number of the die is how many spaces it can move and also represents its attack power. So inherently, things that are slower are also better in a fight. And over the course of the game, you, you have three actions a turn. You can deploy your dice out for actions. When your ships get blown up, they just go back on your player board and it takes an action to redeploy them. But every time they get blown up, you re-roll the die, so you might get a different kind of ship. You could also take an action to reconfigure one of your ships into a different kind of ship. There's some pseudoscience explanation of this in the flavor of the game, but whatever, like it's quantum technology, and so you can just molecularly reorganize your ships, but whatever. You can also research technology during the course of the game, and there are some permanent technologies and some one-shot technologies out, and you just increment those. You have a die that represents your dominance, your military strength, and a die that represents your research, and you can take an action to just increment the research die by one. When it hits six, you take a take a technology. When your dominance die ever hits six, which is hard, then you get to place one of your quantum cubes for free, because the die goes up every time you blow up another ship, but then it goes down every time one of your ships gets blown up. The game definitely favors aggression. The attacker cannot get destroyed in a fight, and the attacker wins ties. So it definitely favors everybody flying around after each other. The basic concept is a lot of fun, and most of the game is pretty fun. It can drag a little at the end, because you can definitely get into the point of it's sort of everybody's keeping an eye out for if the next guy has the ability to win on their next turn, and then you have to stop whatever you're doing to go blow up their appropriate ships. The technologies, some of the technology cards feel very strong, and so it's not that they're necessarily imbalanced, because everybody has access to them, and there's a good chance whatever one I buy that's really awesome, another really awesome one is going to flip up. But it did make them pretty swingy, which some of the people did not like as much as maybe if they had been at a more lower, smooth power level. But were you about to say something, Jay? Yeah, I was just going to say, it sound, you, when you're describing all these mechanics, was this game made by Chessex by any chance? <laughs> the six-sided dice are pretty nice. They're four different player colors, I think. They're really big six-sided dice, so they look pretty nice. If it was Chessex... I think you'd have more dice, right? Because they'd be like, no, it's a pound of dice in right. the box. In this, you, I think there are seven dice of each color because you use one die to keep track of the dominance, one die to keep track of the research. You start with three ships, and the most common of the one-shot technologies was expand your fleet, which is take another die and roll it and put it in your scrapyard, which is the place where you deploy ships out of. It can be nice to have more, and it can be... Depending on the situation, it could be more or less exciting to have more. You still only have three actions a turn, and so got as many ships as you want. You're having more dice gives you more options, but doesn't just let you smash the other players with overwhelming firepower. That was Quantum. It was generally positive, and I think the other people who, who played it were generally positive, but it did have a few little quibbles that the more non-confrontational Eurogamer steady game sort of folks may not like it quite as much we'll just uh continue the trend of me talking as much in a row as possible let's go on to the one i mentioned earlier which was sail to india this is another game from aeg in this case it's one of their are they still calling it big in japan anymore i've stopped paying attention to their marketing I don't know, yeah, but they it's another one of these games where they right they brought Love Letter over, and it was awesome, and it was really successful, and they're like, hey, let's try that again. Yeah, nobody's really paying attention to these Japanese game designers. Todd Rowland went over there, and, and he spent time in Japan talking to people and doing research and, 
and meeting and looking around. So I'm not sure how much longer this surge will last before everybody else is just kind of getting in on it. Like, I think one of the more anticipated games for this year for the U.S. release is, is it Machi Koro? And that's been out for a couple of years in Japan. But Sale to India, like I said, is again another micro game. So small box, 20 bucks. And this is a sort of a Euro game in your pocket, I would say. You have a total of 13 of your little cubes, right? It's a Euro game. You have to have little wooden cubes. Of course. And these little wooden cubes represent everything that you have. You have to use them to track victory points. You have to use them to track your money. You have to use them to track your technology. They represent your ships. You're sailing from port. You're trying to sail from Portugal to India, and so you're going out and collecting goods and then selling them for money and victory points. And so you start with a, a stock like it has starts with 13. Some of them automatically get assigned to scientist. One of them automatically gets assigned to keep track of your ship speed. Several of them get put on Lisbon, and then you can take actions to activate more. You just you get two actions a turn. And that's, that's it. And you're going to need to activate more of them because for your money, you have to put a cube on the money track as a banker. And so you've got a, a card that on the top has from one, two, three, four, five bucks. If you want to ha- be holding on to more than five bucks, you have to have another cube to move from Lisbon onto your wealth track. Similar for the victory points, the historian is keeping track of your victory points, and that track goes up to five, and if you want to score more than five victory points during the course of the game, you're going to need to pull another worker up there. I'm sure five is enough. Probably not. You probably, before the end of the game, will want to put a second one. It's a relatively low-scoring game, and you don't need the historians for the end-of-game scoring. So, like I said, you, you start with a row of... Nine or twelve cards. It's nine nine cards for three players. Twelve cards for four players. It's only three or four players, and the first three of them are revealed. And each of these cards is a spot on the road to India, with the last card representing I- India. And each one has two buildings and two trade goods. And as you you send your ships out, and then you can, if you want have them hop up onto a trade good, or you can take an action to have them hop up onto a building. When you put your cube on the building, now you've built the building. When you put your cube up onto the trade good, now you have that trade good. When you sell, you want to have a wide variety of trade goods, which gets you cash. You use the cash to buy increases to your ship speed, which again are tracked with one of your little cubes, or technologies, and the technologies are mostly victory points. Some of them are during the game victory points. Some of them are end game victory point storing. You know, get an extra two victory points for every church you control. The buildings that you can build there are strongholds, which let your ships start further out down this nine or twelve sea zone track when they're they're launching from Lisbon. Churches are just worth victory points, and markets count as one of the trade goods. You just you build that building, and every time you sell. It counts as you having that trade good without you having to pick up your piece, which for the normal trade goods, you pick up your cube and move it all the way back to Lisbon because, right, your ship has now picked up the trade good and sailed back to Lisbon and made money by selling it. You get victory points if you sell a lot of different goods at once. You get victory points for being the person who uncovers the various spots on the way to India. It's a pretty straightforward Euro game in an itty-bitty tiny package, and I think that's basically its main draw. It's obviously not going to compete with something like the next game I'm going to talk about, Russian Railroads, you know, these big heavy Euro games, but it's something you can get out and play it a bit quicker with people who, who enjoy that sort of thing, but don't want to spend half an hour setting up and then two hours playing and so on and so forth. Okay, so you don't have any magical random comments to save me from having to talk about a third game in a row by myself? Mm, squeak. you got to play more new games when I'm not around, Jay, so we have more of a back and forth here. Come on, man. Sorry, my group likes its, you know, tried and true 
play Agricola and make fun of the guy who one time had to beg and therefore ended up with negative victory points rather than scary new things. Scary new what? Agricola? I thought you weren't allowed to play Agricola anymore. I thought you had to play Caverna now. No. As soon as we can actually get a copy of Caverna, we'll probably switch over to it, but last I checked, it was sold out forever. I thought they had actually managed to get another printing over it of it over here to the United States, but I'm, I I already have Agricola, so I like I, Caverna's. I, you know, I like Caverna, but I don't I don't feel like I need Agricola and Caverna given the uh, all the games that the other people have. It's you can pre-order it on Cool Stuff right now. Ooh, <laughs> expected release May June. Uh, any second <laughs> now. Any yeah. second now. And you hardly have to... Oh, see, you can add in your own copy of Splendor, and then you're set. Okay, so so the next thing is Russian Railroads. Now, i got to tell you, I mean, I knew people liked Russian Railroads, but I was sort of surprised when I saw the Dice Tower nominations announced for the 2013 games, and Russian Railroads was all over the place. So, clearly a lot of other gaming podcasters really like Russian Railroads, so the pressure is on here, Russian Railroads. Can you can you deliver? And Russian Railroads is designed by Helmut Oli and Lonnie Orgler, and in the United States it's distributed by Z-Man. Russian Railroads, definitely your, like I said, definitely your heavy euro. There is a, a lot going on in this. You have a player board, and on your player board you have four different railroads. I'm sorry, you have three different railroads and a an industry track and on each of the railroads you have possibly four different kinds of track (laughs) and you have to build out the cheap track and then you can build out the more expensive track and then you can build it more than that so you can't ever build out more in the more expensive track than you've built out in the cheaper track and that is true for each of the three tracks separately each of the tracks Every turn scores you points based on the number of track, uh, the, how far out you've built each of the different kinds of rail, so long as you also have assigned a locomotive to that track that is powerful enough to actually get that far on the track. Plus, on top of that, each of the tracks has a whole mess of different special abilities at the bottom of it, like spots you have to build out far enough on the main track to be able to earn the right to be able to play the fancier tracks. One of the tracks can just get you extra victory points just for existing, even if it's not powered. There's a couple of spots in the tracks where you unlock a bonus cube that, where you get to, or not a bonus cube, but a bonus disc, where you get to choose one of these special powers that enhances your ability in in one sort of the game. And then there's the factory track, which is, you have to choose between building locomotives and building factories as you move yourself on this industry track, which is also worth points every turn based on what you have. And the factories that you put out, depending on what the factory is, triggers you to have a little ability every turn. So there's an awful lot of moving parts going on with it. And I have to say, in the feel, probably the most distinctive thing about it was the insane number of points that you can accumulate, right? It's got that victory point track that goes around the edge of the board. It goes from, you know, 0 to 99. If you are playing the game well, you can end up with 500 points. Wow. So you can go around the track a lot. And so I I would definitely say if, if you sit down to play this, just remember that it's completely pointless to even think in the first few turns about actually scoring points. Your first few turns are all about setting yourself up for future turns, because the number of points you can score in the first few turns is nothing compared to what you can score in the big turns. It gets really big because you, when you get to the end, the the most valuable form of track is worth seven points per spot, and one of the bonus chips upgrades your victory point scoring, so those are worth ten points a spot now, and then you can put little doubling squares out of them, so every single one of these railroad track spots gets to the point where it's twenty points each turn. So your last turn, you can easily be dropping 150 points in a turn. So it's a ton. 
there's a lot going on. It's very smooth. It's it's sort of weird. It falls into an odd spot for me where I feel like there are actually quite a few good Euro games that don't necessarily stand out for me as the, oh, I want to go back and this is the Euro game that I want to play this time. So I like Russian Railroads. I gave it my seven, which is the, okay, yeah, this is definitely good, but I feel like it's the weakest delivered seven I give a game. I feel unexcited about the game, even though it's good. I don't know why that's... It's very strange, Jay. Very strange. I, I always find your board game r- ranking... Board game geek ranking system hilarious. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> it's, you've just so stratified it and, you know, codified what all of the meanings are. I feel like you should be like, this is horrible, get out of my kitchen, Gordon Ramsay style. You're <laughs> at such a level of analysis here. Uh... Well, those games have much lower numbers. What I actually wish that you could do, and there there was a website that did this partially, is to basically just order them, and then just have it be something like, the top 10% are this, the next 10% are that, the next 10% of that, and so then you don't get into relative anything with the games, or how I, what it means when I give it a 6, or what it means you get a 7, just for everybody it would be, if something gets a 10, it's in your top 10% of games. If something gets, you know, that... And there was a website, I think was it Game Off, like Face Off, I think is what it was. And it would actually let you import your collection as entered on BGG. It'll say Game 1 versus Game 2. Which one is better? Game 2 versus 3. And, and so it'll just, not randomly, but it'll just pair up all these different games and then come up with a, a sorting based on that. But it's it would only import games that you had marked as owned in BGG, not just any game. Two games enter, one game leaves. Yes, yes, but it's like 572 games enter, 572 games leave, but now they're sorted in order. (laughs) From best to worst, yeah. Yes, merge sort. (laughs) So, clearly, though, I am way too much of a ranking statistics gaming dork. Clearly. You who compiles the constant L5R clan standings? No! (laughs) So, I think Russian Railroads is a good game, and I think that people who like that sort of game will really like Russian Railroads. I just, I don't know, maybe it was because it was in the middle of a whole lengthy weekend of playing a bunch of games, and I'm not more enthusiastic about what is clearly a good game. I, I don't know why. I don't know. So let's let's switch to the absolute other end of the lightness silliness spectrum. And okay, I hate Munchkin. It's too random. <laughs> oh, is that not where you're going? That was not where I was going. <laughs> that was not where I was going. Where I was going is that you and I just had the chance to play the newest Smash Up expansion, which is Science Fiction Double Feature. So. What did you think about science fiction double feature? I enjoy Smash Up, but it's. I also acknowledge it's a very light, random game, so for what it is, I quite enjoy it. Now I'm trying to remember, so there was The Spies, there was The Time Travelers, there was the. Was it Gorillas with laser beams or Monkeys with laser beams? Both of them. It was Cyborg Apes. Cyborg Apes? Yes. Yeah, you kind of start wondering what drugs these people are on, but I guess just the internet. <laughs> and then the the clone faction. I mean, I liked it. The, I mean, the, they had nice references, like the spies was very obviously mostly James Bond inspired. The time travelers, the boss so was was it Doctor Win or Doctor Where or Doctor What? Doctor Wen. <laughs> yes. Yes. Although, and and I, the, I, the spy boss was. His name was just Secret Agent, but it's ex- it looks exactly like James Bond. <laughs> I mean, I was just sad Dr. Wynn didn't have a ridiculously large scarf, but maybe that's too on the nose. <laughs> it's fun. If you if you like Smash Up, it was certainly good Smash Up time. 
If you're not familiar with Smash Up, it is a light game. It's great if you have a bunch of internet-savvy friends and you want a beer and pretzels game. Playing it once again, I think the one real problem I have with that game, instead of saying you get two things you get to do during your turn, it's you get to play a minion and you get to play an action, which means when your hand clogs with one type, you're losing out on half your turn. Yeah, that can be mildly annoying. And the, the Secret Agent deck might have the ability to inflict that on you. Yeah, me- mechanically, let's see, with the, the Time Traveler faction had a lot of recycling your deck, playing actions again, putting things back into your deck. The Secret Agent deck had a lot of fiddling with the top of people's decks. A bunch of cards that let you look at the top of your deck and put some of it on the bottom. There were some cards that let you do that to your opponents. And there were things that let you made everybody else discard minions or it made people mill cards off the top of their deck until they hit a minion so it might discard a bunch of actions or it might not. The shapeshifters, yeah, there was a lot of copy the power of that guy, copy the ability of that guy. I put this guy and then I, I get to tutor a, a card out of my deck. and Right, I'm going to copy your onboard action that's been hanging around. Yeah, and the, the cyborg apes were about playing actions on their guys. So you had Furious George, who got plus one power for every action that was played on him. You had actions that increased power permanently. You had actions that increased power based on the number of actions on the guy. You had a guy who lets you play actions on him as a free action. You had a guy who lets you play actions on him out of the discard pile. Yeah, I I feel like... This expansion sort of sits where a lot of the Smash Up expansions have, which is if you like Smash Up and you want more funny options to play with the game, you will like the expansion. It doesn't detract from the game, which is harder to do than you might think. There are definitely some expansions that just try too hard to change too much about the game and end up messing it up. Like, what do I... Cities. I don't ever want to play Seven Wonders with the Cities expansion. It's just better without the expansion. At the same time, it doesn't add anything new. If you didn't like Smash Up, this isn't going to somehow make you like Smash Up, and it's not going to give you a new and completely different Smash Up experience. So, right, if, if you like Smash Up, you'll like Science Fiction Double Feature. Yeah. Next is another game from last year, which is Steam Park by... I'm trying to say the designer's name, but I'm going to butcher these one. It's Aureliano Buonafino, Lorenzo Silva, and Lorenzo Sorrentino, published by Yellow. And Steam Park, it was heavier than I thought it was based on the way people had described it. In Steam Park, you are designing a theme park for robots. And you primarily score victory points by building rides and having robots come to your rides and at the same time you have to manage dirt because doing many of the actions in the game and just having robots at your your theme park will generate dirt and at the end of the game dirt gets you negative victory points in an escalating sort of way in, in fact if you have too much dirt you just lose literally if you have more than 30 dirt, you just lose the game at the end of the game. You, I mean, you can go above and get yourself back down. And you are rolling your dice on your turn, and you have, was, I think it was maybe six dice, and you can roll them as many times as you want. You can keep rolling until you get exactly the result that you want. But as you're rolling the dice, when you want to lock a die, you put it on your... It's a pig. I don't know why it's a pig, honestly, but you put the die on the pig. Once you've locked all your dice, then... You reach into the center of the table and you grab one of the turn order markers. And so the first person who's done with their die rolling gets a turn order marker that not only do they get to go first, but also it cleans up dirt. Whereas the person who goes last, the person who goes third and fourth, they actually add dirt to their park. So there is a cost to taking forever to come up with what you want. And actually, you can't take forever. Once everyone but one person has locked their dice, that person only gets three more re-rolls, so they, they can't actually just keep on going forever until they get exactly what they want. And the different results that your dice can get are you can 
build little rides on this little teeny tiny board that you start with. Uh, you can expand your theme park so it's got more space, which you're going to need to do because the placement rules are really strict. You can put concession stands around, which will enhance different abilities. For example, there's each of the rides has a color, and when you have visiting robots, you're trying to get a robot of the particular color. The info stand lets you temporarily put the wrong color robot on a spot. You can attract robots to your park. You have a bag, and the bag starts out with one robot of each of the five colors. When you attract visitors, let's say you have two dice for attracting visitors, you get to pick two colors of robot, put them in the bag, and then you randomly pick out that many robots. And if you've got somewhere to put them, then you've got somewhere to put them. And if you don't have somewhere to put them, then you put them back into the stock. So your pull is always going to be from a collection of five robots plus whatever you just put in. You can clean up dirt as an action, and you will need to do that at some point or several points during the game. And... You can also get to play bonus cards, which will give you points for various conditions. You might get points for how many shovels, cleanup shovels you rolled this turn, or you might get points for how many pink robots you have in your amusement park at that particular point in time. It was okay. I wasn't excited about it. Like I said, I was surprised at how relatively heavy it was, the way that people had described it, almost like it was a kid's game. The placement of your stuff on the board is very constraining. And I'm a little surprised at how constrained they made that. I don't know if it was just to force you to spend dice to expand your park, but I know that we had several people who played it who got considerably frustrated as the game went on because they hadn't quite gotten things in the right spot to follow the placement rules, and so they couldn't do what they wanted to do, and... But it's it's got cute artwork on the box. That was Steam Park from Yellow and what I can only assume are three Italian guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, next we have another expansion, a standalone expansion. A standalone expansion for something that, if I'm not mistaken, Jay and I both like. So why don't you take it away, Jay? Yeah, new new Thunderstone expansion. I'm sure if you go back to, like, eight different episodes, you can get the full description of how to play, but the short version is it's a deck-building game where you alternate your time between going to a village and trying to amass a team of adventurers versus using those adventurers to go fight monsters in the dungeon. And there's physical attack, there's magical attack, since it's a dungeon, there's darkness in the dungeon, so you have to bring some light to actually be able to see the monsters in hopes of killing them. It's very traditional D&D themed, where you've got fighters and rogues and clerics and wizards, and you're fighting against undead or dragons or oozes. Beware the gelatinous cube. Yeah. Seriously, those guys are... Uh, don't Jerks. mess with them. Jerks, yes. I think you also said it was something like a, a at some level, like greatest hits expansion, it, where yes. there's a lot of old, pre-advanced Thunderstone cards being brought back, being brought into the Thunderstone advanced templating and style, such that you can play with some of your old favorites in the new, new shininess. Yes, yeah, flaming sword back. Feast was back. Creeping Doom. No Fireball, though. That may have just been too good. Uh, they also did not bring back the completely broken Elf Wizard from the original base set. Mm. Where, like, I think that's what they call it. Was it just... Uh, whatever they just called him. But, right, it was a guy he cost five, and he was plus two magic attack and light. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, just a little. Yeah. They got a little better at, at balancing the, the heroes and the cards as, as time went on. But, yeah, I, you know what? I don't get Thunderstone out much. Well, I don't know how much I get all of them, but let's face it, I play all these new different things, and I really like deck builders, and I play a lot of I've, I've, a lot of different deck builders, but every time I get Thunderstone back out, it's like, man, that's right, I really like this game. Yeah. Although I, I have to say, yeah, it may be time to finally just bite the bullet and dump all this Thunderstone stuff together for Epic Thunderstone, just to 
speed up the setup yeah. time, if anything. <laughs> I don't know. And yes, and Worlds Collide actually has dividers for Epic Thunderstone, so you can have a, a divider for here are just here's your giant stack of weapons, here's your stack of food, here's your stack of light. So you actually have dividers if you have divided your or if you have set up your game to be played with the Epic variant. And for people who haven't played it, the Epic variant is instead of picking, you know, ten different or eight different village cards and picking four different heroes and you just have those exact twelve cards to buy from from the game and there's a bunch of copies of each one, you instead take all you know, you mix all your weapons together, you mix all your food together, you mix all your level one heroes together, all your villagers together, and then you just have a couple of stacks of each of those on the board available. So there are four different level one heroes available to buy at any one point in time, but as soon as one of those get bought, it's going to be another random guy underneath it. You'll have you know maybe two stacks of weapons, one of light items, whatever. And so it's it it eliminates some strategic aspects of it because you can no longer really plan on combos. It's more of a just trying to maximize the overall power of your cards so that you can because you can't just rely on. I guess you can always rely on there being a bunch of spells if you want something like a bunch of spells or a weapon. If you right, have a hero you can't that has be like oh, I keep getting this one weapon that combos really well with my hero that I keep getting. But it has a lot more variability to it in it. Your breakdown and setup time it, it cuts it down. You also are no longer allowed to buy level two or three heroes. You have to level up into them because there's just the level one heroes in the random stacks. But the credit for that variant goes to Richard Launius and Tom Vassell. So, so that is a a standalone. So you can pick that up if you want to. So does that make three standalone expansions for Thunderstone Advance now? You've got the original Thunderstone Advance Towers of Ruin base set, the Thunderstone Numenera, and then this one, I think? Yeah, that sounds right. I don't know. I'm trying to remember what's in Ruins of Advance well enough. I don't don't think I have an opinion on whether or not Worlds Collide or Towers of Ruin is a better entry point. Either one's good. I mean... Yeah, they're both fine entry points if you haven't played the game before, and if you have played the game before, especially if you've played all the way back to pre-advanced and you liked some of those cards and you're now seeing them come back, seems like a good pickup. Thunderstone still, yeah, still a good deck builder. So the last game that we have today, I think, is Bruges by Stefan Feld, also from Z-Man Games. We've had a couple of those this time. Feld has, yeah, man, that, that guy has just been making a lot of highly regarded games lately. And this is one of them. Bruges is, oh, it's a city in the Netherlands, maybe? It's somewhere in Europe. I don't yes, yes. remember where exactly. Because I'm an American and I went to American schools. <laughs> Have you gotten to play this? No. Oh, okay. Well. No, I, I, I know of Bruges mostly from the movie from like two or three years ago with, I want to say Colin Farrell in it. You have no idea what I'm talking about. I have I'll no honestly clue what movie you're talking about. None. I, I think Jay and Mike get to movies an awful lot more than I do. Well, we don't have small children, so we can go to, you know, R-rated movies. Yeah, the, the last movie that I saw in the theater was the first of the Hobbit movies, which really is just a lesson in why it's not worth it going to see <laughs> movies in the theater, because that thing was bad. What, you, you didn't like 20-minute song breaks? No, no. No, I did not. And not only was the the movie bad, but at the movie... There was maybe an eight-year-old sitting in front of me with his mother and just doing his own soundtrack for the film, repeating what oh. character said, doing swooshes and explosions, and... Oh, I, I hate that, that... I mean, I went to see Godzilla, and there was, like, a six-year-old four or five seats down, and, like, halfway through the movie, he just got bored, so it was just, like, hyper-bouncing around. I'm like, why are you bringing this kid... To a 10 o'clock PG-13 movie, he's obviously not ready for this. You're distracting me. Uh, yeah, well, at least PG-13 is what was the worst thing I saw. When I 
I don't know, was I in high school when this came out? Whenever it came out, I saw Blade 2 in the theaters. So clearly you can tell this is what I saw more movies in the theaters because yeah. that's a piece of garbage. Uh, t- to be fair, I think it would need to elevate itself to hit piece of garbage, but continue. <laughs> it's insulting the piece of garbage. But I, I went and saw this, and several rows in front of me, these two women had brought six kids who could not... Who I don't know how old they were, six, eight? I mean, they could not mm-hmm. possibly have been more than ten. And that is a extremely gory R-rated movie that no small child should be taken to, ever. No. So they didn't interfere with the movie, but it was wildly inappropriate. This one, it didn't feel inappropriate so much as annoying. Control your child, madam. See, do I take my three-year-old to the theater? No. Why? Because he could not deal with it. Anyhow. Now I'm just a ranting old man. Yeah, well, I mean, it's one thing to be like, I'm going to go see Frozen. I go see Frozen, I expect a bunch of kids there. That's a kid's movie. When I go to an R-rated movie, or even a PG-13 movie, I don't expect to see kids there. Certainly not little kids. But let's detangent back to uh, Bruges. <laughs> back to Bruges? Yes. yes. So, Bruges is a card-driven Euro game, and you are trying to enhance your prestige in the city, and you do this in several ways. You can build canals. Each person has a a little corner of the board, and you can build canals out from there. If you get all the way to the end of one of the canals, you get a statue, and whoever gets the first statue takes the one that's worth the most points. And if you get your canals halfway out, then you get, I think, three points. You can increase yourself on the reputation track and just some other Euro-E scoring mechanics. But the two, I think, distinguishing things about this, I, I think, that make it mechanically most different are that at the beginning every, of every turn, the start player rolls five dice of different colors, and the values of these dice affect things in different ways. First, you add up whatever the total pips are on the dice that cost one or, uh, the, or the dice that rolled one or two, That is the cost in guilders to advance yourself on this reputation track, which is worth victory points at the end of the game. So you never know how much that's going to cost. You want to save money to keep aside for that. Also, there are five different kinds of threat. And for every five or six that is rolled, each player gets a threat of that type. And so these threats are, you know, rats and fire and flood. And if you get three threat tokens, and they if you get three of them, they go together to make a circle. If you get three threat tokens of a particular type, then something bad happens. You lose all your money, or one of your peoples goes away, or one of your houses burns down, or... The bees! <laughs> the other mechanic is that you have these double-sided cards. And so when you're drawing your new hand of, of five cards at the start of the turn, you have two stacks to pick out of, and you can see the house side, so you know what color the card is. And on the other side of the card is a person. Now, you need a a worker of a particular color to build a house, and then when you build the house, it's worth one. The people then, when they come out on the other side of the card, they cost cash, they... or most of them cost cash, I guess some of them are free. Then they're worth some amount of victory points at the end of the game. Some of them have triggered abilities when they come into play. Some of them have ongoing abilities. Some of them give you actions to take. And then you also use these cards for the other things that you want to do. You can take an action to remove a threat token, but you have to discard a card of the appropriate color. When you want to build out one of your canals, each of your canals, the spots on the canal are that particular color. And so you have to discard the card. So there's some some randomness in what you're able to do each turn because you're going to be constrained by the colors of the cards that you pull. And, you know, it can be frustrating. You're like, red, red, red. No, I do not need four red cards this turn. Come on. No, now there's a purple. What are you doing to me? That sort of thing. I thought it was pretty good. I think the the way the mechanics went together was fit pretty well. And I think those are pretty distinctive, the way that, that he's melding those together. I think the only thing I didn't like about it was that there are these majority tokens 
there are three different things you can have a majority in, and it's uh, canals and reputation and people, I think. It's either people or houses. I think it's people. And if at any point in the game you have a majority in that thing, you get to flip over your token, and that was worth four victory points at the end of the game. And the reason I was not a big fan of that is that it was kind of hard for the majority to ever change. One person would get out ahead in canals, or you'd get out ahead in reputation, or and maybe you'd be able to catch up, but you'd never be able to get ahead of that person as long as they put some minimal effort into it. So, Right, longest road is maybe flipping a few times, but yeah. Uh, it, yeah, so it... uh. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's like it, it felt like you're supposed to be trying to do this, but it often ended up just not being worth it. It was the big thing for a lot of those was just kind of whoever gets out of the gate fast in that particular thing. It does give people something different to go for, so so that's nice. You know, if you focus first on your canals, that's something you can grab, whereas somebody else is focusing on people and they get to grab that one. The reputation one, kind of everybody can keep up on. The only reason someone will fall behind on reputation is if a they leave themselves with no cash, or if you manage to roll a big number, like five twos got rolled at the start. Other than that, everybody is, if at all possible, always going to be paying for the reputation, because it's a very overall cheap source of victory points. And you get your money... And I should also say, yeah, the other effect that the dice have, since this is a combination of the cards and the dice, it's probably important to mention, the way you get money is that you can discard a card, and the amount that you get is whatever the die value of that kind of card is. So, there you go. That was Bruges by Stefan Feld from Z-Man Games. Definitely a, a solid euro for, for people who like that sort of thing with some distinctive mechanics, which is is always good. Well, I'm out of stuff, Jay. I'm I'm out, spent, tapped. Unless we want to go back to games from like 2009, which I don't. I suppose. Wow. Every so often, you you do just run out of words. <laughs> uh, not really. I just wait until the mic's off and then I start talking again. Fair enough. <laughs> well, thanks for listening. You've been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can visit us at strangeassembly.com and subscribe to the podcast there or check out some more reviews. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can visit us at facebook.com slash strangeassembly or follow us at strangeassembly on Twitter. I do like to hear from our audience, so you can email me directly at chris at strangeassembly.com or jay at jay at strangeassembly.com. But until then... For Jay Earl, I'm Chris Stevenson, and you've been listening to Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.